Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. Today's story is a little different, but it's certainly just as gruesome. We won't be talking about a murder, disease, or mysterious death, but rather a workplace incident. Workplace hazards are fairly common in all occupations. Even as a seamstress for Universal, I have to take yearly hazard communication, bloodborne pathogens, and environmental health and safety training. As you all know, this training is to keep us safe and aware of preventable work hazards. In fact, there's a tragic story behind nearly all of the safety standards we have today, including building occupation capacity and requirements for visible exit signs. Following the tragedy of the Titan submersible, I wanted to share with you all the history of diving and the science behind decompression. The pictures that go along with this case are absolutely insane, and you'll be able to find them on the podcast Instagram at storiesftmortuary. My sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, but first, I do need your help finding another missing indigenous woman. Antoinette Christine Calladito was last seen inside her family's residence in the 200 block of Arnold Street off Route 66 in Gallup, New Mexico, on April 6, 1986. Her sister told authorities that Antoinette opened the front door after an unidentified male knocked sometime after 3 a.m. Her sister reported that the man claimed to be their Uncle Joe. Antoinette went to answer the door, and her sister went back to sleep. A neighbor reported seeing an older model brown truck with New Mexico license plates outside Antoinette's home between 6.30 and 7 a.m. that morning. The neighbor saw a man get out of the truck and walk towards Antoinette's house. The witness couldn't describe the man or the truck in detail, however. Antoinette has never been heard from again. Her mother, who was asleep in the residence, didn't hear the knock on the door and didn't realize Antoinette was missing until approximately 7 a.m. when she went to wake up her children. She searched the neighborhood until 11 a.m. before notifying the police, but the police told her she would have to wait eight hours before making an official missing persons report. Authorities question Antoinette's uncle regarding her disappearance, but he's not considered a suspect and was never thought to be involved in her abduction. About a year after Antoinette disappeared, the Gallup Police Department got a phone call from someone who said she was Antoinette and she was in Albuquerque. Before they could trace the call, the police heard an angry-sounding male voice say, Who said you could use the phone? They heard the sound of a scuffle and a scream, then the line went dead. The call lasted only 40 seconds. Antoinette's mother listened to a recording of the call and believes the female voice was her daughter's. Four years later, a waitress in Carson City, Nevada, thought she saw Antoinette. She was described as a girl in her early teens who was sitting with an unkempt couple. The girl kept dropping her fork, and each time the waitress picked it up for her, she squeezed the waitress's hand. After they all left, someone found a note under the girl's plate that read, Help me, call police. It has not been confirmed that the girl in the restaurant was Antoinette. Antoinette's case remains unsolved. She was a fourth grader at Lincoln Elementary School at the time of her disappearance, and is described as mature and responsible for her age. Investigators believe foul play may have been involved in her disappearance and that she's currently deceased. Antoinette has black hair and brown eyes. She has dark-colored moles on her right cheek, nose, back, both hands, and on her right knee. She has scars on one of her knees and on her lip. Her ears are pierced. 
Some agencies give her name as Antoinette. Antoinette is of Navajo and Italian descent, and she wears glasses. She was last seen in a knee-length pink nightgown and possibly a silver chain with a small cross-shaped turquoise pendant. If you have any information regarding Antoinette's whereabouts or her remains, please contact the Gallup Police Department at 505-863-9365. Humans have questioned what lies beneath the surface ever since we emerged from the water as primitive tetrapods untouchable secrets, just out of reach, have beckoned from below. Mysterious and often undeniably frightening, the concept of breathing underwater tantalized the pioneers of diving. Scuba diving evolved from ancient versions of free diving and snorkeling. A particularly popular instance of this being used successfully was when a Greek sculptor named Silas was captured by Persians and taken prisoner on one of their ships. He escaped and swam nine miles to rejoin his countrymen with the help of a hollow reed as a makeshift snorkel. More than any other sport, free diving is based on old subconscious reflexes in human beings. For the first nine months of our lives, we humans exist in an aquatic environment very similar to seawater. If an infant is submerged underwater, it'll instinctively hold its breath for up to 40 seconds while making swimming motions, although we seem to lose this ability as we get older and commence walking. Awakening these reflexes is one of the most important elements of free diving, thus giving humans better abilities to survive at great depths. In 16th century England and France, full diving suits made of leather were used to dive at depths of up to 60 feet. Air was pumped down from the surface with the aid of manual pumps. Soon, helmets were made of metal to withstand even greater water pressure, allowing divers to go deeper. British engineer John Smeaton developed the air pump in 1771. It allowed air to be pumped to the diver by being connected to a hose, which was in turn connected to a diving barrel. The following year, Frenchman Sieur Fremenet created a rebreathing device that allowed the diver to recycle inhaled air from inside the diving barrel. Unfortunately, despite being the first self-contained air device, its lack of research and development led to his death due to lack of oxygen after using the device for 20 minutes. In 1825, English inventor William James supported Smeaton's research by designing another self-contained breather, which consisted of a cylindrical iron belt that held just enough air, about 450 psi, for a seven-minute dive and was attached to a copper helmet. By the 1830s, the surface-supplied air helmet was perfected well enough to allow extensive salvage work. A few decades later, in 1876, Englishman Henry Fluce invented a closed-circuit oxygen rebreather. While it was originally intended for use in the repair of an iron door in a flooded ship, he then tried using it for a 30-foot dive underwater. Like James, Fluce died from the experiment, this time from oxygen toxicity. Soon before the closed-circuit oxygen rebreather was invented, the rigid diving suit was developed by Benoit Rucreol and Auguste Denyeruz in 1873. The suit weighed about 200 pounds and offered a safer air supply. Many years later, in 1921, famed magician and escape artist Harry Houdini invented a diver suit. Called the Houdini suit, it was inspired by his fascination with escape stunts and allowed divers to quickly and safely get out of it while underwater. In 1926, Yves Le Prier created the first scuba, 
or self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. He was inspired by previous versions of scuba gear, but knew that the tube that ran from the diver to the surface was a hindrance and a safety hazard. He created a new device that consisted of compressed air contained in a cylinder and a simple pressure regulator. For the first time ever, humans could breathe underwater on their own. Although divers couldn't stay underwater for very long, the concept took off, giving engineers and scientists a template to work off for years to come. His next big invention was the full face mask, which replaced the Fernet goggles. Fernet goggles clenched tighter and tighter to the divers' face as they descended, often leading to disastrous consequences and mask squeeze. The full face mask was connected to the breathing apparatus, so pressure was maintained between the two. Now, divers could go far deeper than the previous 32-foot or 10-meter limit. Starting in the 19th century, two main avenues of investigation, one scientific, the other technological, greatly accelerated underwater exploration. Scientific research was advanced by the work of Paul Burr and John Scott Haldane from France and Scotland, respectively. Their studies helped explain the effects of water pressure on the body and also define safe limits for compressed air diving. At the same time, improvements in technology, including compressed air pumps, carbon dioxide scrubbers, and regulators, made it possible for people to stay underwater for longer periods of time. In 1937, Medical College of Wisconsin faculty member Dr. Edgar End pioneered the use of pressurized helium oxygen for deep diving. Dr. End's work drew the attention of Milwaukee deep-sea diver Max Knoll, who was interested in developing underwater equipment that would allow him to explore the wreckage of the Lusitania. Working in the decompression chamber at Milwaukee County Emergency Hospital, Dr. N discovered an inhaled mixture of helium and oxygen enabled people to breathe normally when in pressurized environments. Together, Noel and Dr. End clearly established the practical use and vast benefits to be gained from helium oxygen as a breathing mixture for deep diving. They went on to develop other underwater diving apparatuses for the U.S. Navy. Dr. N also conducted research on the use of hyperbaric oxygen in the treatment of other ailments, including carbon monoxide poisoning. His discoveries gave birth to a new field of study, hyperbaric medicine, which is the medical use of oxygen at a higher pressure level than our atmosphere. In 1942, French engineer Emile Gagnon and French Navy officer Jacques Cousteau co-invented an improved autonomous diving suit and a modern diving regulator that released fresh air on demand. The following year, they began selling the famous Aqualung. The United States Navy's innovative and breakthrough programs of Genesis and Sea Lab 1 through 3 changed the trajectory of deep sea diving. These programs pioneered deep excursion saturation diving technologies. Dr. George F. Bond was a U.S. naval officer and assistant in charge of the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory in New London, Connecticut. In 1957, he began a project to try to determine the properties and effects of various breathing gas formulas, which would allow human beings to live, work, and explore the oceans at exceedingly deeper ranges than before. Initially, the testing was conducted on test animals. Rats were used in phase A of the experiments, and soon after, goats and monkeys were added during phase B, and by 1962, congressional approval to conduct experiments on human test subjects ushered in phase C of what would become the Genesis 1 tests, in which humans would be subjected to what was essentially a nitrogen-free atmosphere. Nitrogen makes up 70.084% of the air breathed at sea-level atmospheric pressure 
with 20.946% being oxygen, with a tiny fraction remaining made up of heavier trace gases such as carbon dioxide. Increased partial pressures of oxygen and nitrogen can cause neurological harm, including death if breathed under advancing pressures for even short periods of time. Searching for a variable breathing mixture to avoid those risks was the driving force behind Genesis. Three naval officers were selected to participate in Phase C of Genesis. John C. Bull, Albert P. Fisher, and Chief Quartermaster Robert A. Barth were exposed to breathing a mixture of helium-oxygen at one atmosphere of pressure for six days in the Navy's hyperbaric chamber, which became known as the Genesis Chamber. During that test, the men were subjected to breathing a mixture consisting of 21.6% oxygen, 4% nitrogen, and 74.4% helium. Eventually, each new phase would broaden and increase the knowledge and understanding of the physiological effects of breathing various gaseous mixtures into the human body, which translated into mankind's ability to venture deeper into the world's oceans. By the time Phase E of Genesis had evolved, the test subjects had spent 12 consecutive days in the chamber at a simulated pressure depth of 198 feet, with the oxygen content of 3.9%, nitrogen level at 6.5%, and helium set at 89.6%. There were a host of challenges throughout these historic experimental phases which ultimately progressed into the U.S. Naval Sea Lab 1-3 through missions, which sought to establish under-ocean living habitats designed to discover and create a new means of deep ocean exploration. Through Genesis and Sea Lab, the resulting saturation diving technology was launched, and an entirely new diving industry within the commercial sector was born. The first commercial saturation dives were performed in 1965 by Westinghouse to replace faulty trash racks at 200 feet, or 61 meters, on the Smith Mountain Dam. The launch of commercial saturation diving had a distinct difference from traditional scuba diving. In scuba diving, decompression occurs within the same day as the dive. In saturation diving, decompression takes several days because the divers have spent weeks working underwater. Diving in any capacity comes with assumed risks, but decompression sickness is perhaps the most immediate. Decompression sickness, also called generalized barotrauma, but commonly referred to as the bends, refers to injuries caused by a rapid decrease in the pressure that surrounds the body, of either air or water. It occurs most commonly in scuba or deep sea divers, although it can also occur during high altitude or unpressurized air travel. However, decompression sickness is rare in pressurized aircrafts, such as those used for commercial flights. When scuba diving with compressed air, the body takes in extra oxygen and nitrogen. The body uses the oxygen, but the nitrogen is dissolved into the blood where it remains during the dive. As divers swim back toward the surface after a deep dive, the water pressure around them decreases. If this transition occurs too quickly, the nitrogen doesn't have enough time to clear from the blood. Instead, it separates out of the blood and forms bubbles in the tissue or the blood. It's these nitrogen bubbles that cause decompression sickness. The condition is called the bends because the joint and bone pains can be so severe they double you over. What happens inside the body during decompression sickness is similar to what happens when opening a carbonated drink. When the can or bottle is opened, the pressure surrounding the beverage in the container decreases, which causes the gas to come out of the liquid in form of bubbles. 
If nitrogen bubbles form in the blood, they can damage blood vessels and block normal blood flow. Factors that increase the risk of decompression sickness include heart muscle birth defects, being older than 30, being female, low cardiovascular fitness, high percentage of body fat, use of tobacco or alcohol, fatigue, seasickness or lack of sleep, older current injuries, diving in cold water, and lung disease. Someone with an abnormal hole or opening in the heart from a birth defect is at especially high risk of developing serious symptoms from decompression illness. Because bubbles create high blood pressure in the lungs, blood and bubbles from the veins may flow more readily through the heart's opening. This means the blood can recirculate into arteries without first getting oxygen. An opening in the heart can also allow a relatively large air bubble, called an air embolism, to circulate into the arteries. An air embolism can cause a stroke. People with asthma or another lung disease may have thin-walled air pockets in their lungs called bulle. These pockets don't empty quickly when the person exhales. As they return to the surface after a deep dive, air in the bulle may expand. If a bully ruptures, it could cause a collapsed lung or allow a large air bubble, air embolism, to enter the arteries. An important development in diving technology came from the creation of the diving bell. Greek philosopher Aristotle recorded the first use of diving bells in the 4th century BC. They supposedly used cauldrons that were overturned and forced into the water so that it retained usable air for the diver. This rudimentary technology again resurfaced in the 16th century, when people started using primitive diving bells in the form of a wooden barrel. These were held stationary a few feet from the surface, with its bottom open to water and its top portion containing air compressed by water pressure. A diver standing upright would have their head in the diving bell. They could leave it for a minute or two to collect sponges or explore the bottom, and then return for a while until the air in the bell was no longer breathable. In 1690, Edmund Halley, the English scientist who discovered Halley's Comet, designed a diving bell with a window that could be used for undersea exploration. His design was used for nearly 100 years. The Halley diving bell had two lead-weighted barrels, a large working barrel and a smaller air refill barrel. Both barrels had openings on the bottom that allowed air and water to enter. Leather hoses attached to the barrels allowed air to flow to a person working inside the bell and to a diver working outside the bell in the ocean. The device wasn't fully practicable until the end of the 18th century, when the British engineer John Smeaton fitted an air pump to the bell. Regardless of the depth to which a diving bell is lowered, in principle at least, fresh air fills the available vital space. Its pressure is automatically regulated by the pump and by the water pressure. Surplus air escapes through the edges of the container. As the bell descends, the water level tends to rise inside the bell. As it surfaces, the decreasing water pressure lowers the level inside the bell. Thus, the pressure inside the bell remains the same as that outside. Some bells, however, are kept at working depth pressure and are used to commute to and from an outfitted surface decompression chamber in the worksite, thus eliminating the need for decompression between dives on a mission. Modern bells may accommodate up to four divers and have been used at depths of more than a thousand feet. It takes a team to make a safe saturation dive, which includes the use of a diving bell. Life support technicians ensure that the air mix in the hyperbaric chamber matches the air that the divers breathe underwater. The dive control team is in charge of operating the diving bell, which raises and lowers on a crane, 
and monitoring the divers as they work. There are even cooks that prepare and serve meals to the divers cooped up in the living chambers. Workers called tenders have a really important support job. They help unspool and retract the umbilical, the thick line of air supply tubes and communication wires that connects the divers to the surface. In the past, tenders had other responsibilities that included docking the diving bell to the pressurized living chambers. Bifer Dolphin was a semi-submersible offshore oil rig built by Acre Engineering of Oslo in 1974. Weighing 3,000 tons and manned by a crew of 100, it was capable of drilling in waters up to 460 meters in depth. To allow construction and maintenance of the wellhead at these depths, the rig was equipped with a sophisticated saturation diving system built by French firm Comex. On November 5, 1983, the rig was drilling in the Frigg gas field in the Norwegian sector of the North Sea. Compression chambers 1 and 2 were connected via a trunk to a diving bell. This connection was sealed by a clamp operated by two tenders, William Crammond and Martin Saunders, who were experienced divers. It was 4 a.m. when Edwin Coward and Roy Lucas were resting in chamber 2 at a pressure of 9 atmospheres. The diving bell with Bjorn Bergeson and Truls Helvik had just been winched up after a dive and joined to the trunk. Leaving their wet gear in the trunk, the divers crept through the trunk into chamber one. The normal procedure would have been to close the bell door, slightly increase the bell pressure to seal this door tightly, close the door between the trunk and chamber one, depressurize the trunk to one atmosphere, and open the clamp to separate the bell from the chamber system. The first two steps had been completed. The chamber door was a round entry about 60 centimeters or almost two feet in diameter. Trules was about to close the door to chamber one when William released the diving bell clamp. A tremendous blast shot from the chambers through the trunk as the pressure went from nine atmospheres to one atmosphere instantly. The decompression pushed the bell away and hit William and Martin. William died on impact and Martin was severely injured. In the midst of the explosive decompression, the chamber door jammed, making the entry less than a foot wide. Trules was forcibly shot out through the tiny opening in the chamber door. Parts of his body scattered across the rig. His spine was found above the chamber on the rig derrick. Trules' body was sent to the morgue in four separate bags. All parts showed fractures and wounds. The fractures of the long bones were transverse, meaning perpendicular to the bone. There were also short and long oblique fractures, meaning the fracture was diagonal. The scalp with long, blonde hair was present, but the top of the skull and the brain were missing. The base of the skull was a collection of tiny bone fragments only. The soft tissue of the face were found, but they were completely separated from the bones. The left upper arm had been separated from the body just below the shoulder joint. The right upper arm was torn to pieces, but still attached to the body. Both hands had been separated from the lower arms. The right thigh, leg, and foot were missing, but the knee joint was found. The left thigh had been separated from the pelvis just below the hip joint. The pelvis itself had been divided into three parts. To one of these parts, a small segment of the small bowel was attached. The penis was present but invaginated, meaning it folded in on itself. 
The soft tissues of the abdomen and the back had been cut straight through at a level about midway between the umbilicus and the pelvis, and thus had been separated from the pelvis. These soft tissues formed an empty sac. From above, one could look down through the larynx. All the thoracic and abdominal organs had been expelled, except the trachea and a fragment of the small bowel. Even the spinal column and most of the ribs had been expelled. The liver had been found somewhere on the deck. It was complete, as if dissected out of the body. Edward, Roy, and Bjorn were autopsied three days after their death, and the findings in each case were nearly identical. The rigor mortis was unusually strong. All the organs showed large amounts of gas in the blood vessels, and scattered hemorrhages were found in the soft tissues. One of the divers had a large, subconjunctival bully. This is essentially a large blister underneath the mucous membrane that covers the eye and the eyelid. The livers were fairly large and hyperemic, meaning it contained more blood than usual. The blood vessels of the stomach formed a prominent, dark network similar to those found in putrefied bodies. In the cardiac chambers and in both the arteries and veins around the heart, large amounts of free fat were found. This fat was mixed with gas bubbles and looked like sizzling butter on a frying pan. The men were essentially boiled from the inside when the nitrogen in their blood violently erupted into gas bubbles. The brains and the spinal cords were also examined. The brains were very pale and the blood vessels were filled with gas. In the major blood vessels, a yellow substance looking like fat was present. Cysts were found all over Bjorn's brain. Serving as a stark reminder of the dangers of saturation diving, the Biford Dolphin incident resulted in the formation of the North Sea Divers Alliance, created from the relatives of the victims. Sadly, it took decades for the Norwegian government, which was operating the Biford Dolphin in 1983, to take responsibility for the accident and provide restitution to the families of the five men killed. The report following the incident determined the cause of death to be human error, but the Alliance filed a lawsuit claiming there was insufficient safety equipment on board. After 26 years of fighting, a report found the chambers contained faulty equipment that led to the accident, suggesting William Crammond was absolved of responsibility. Following the Biford Dolphin incident, every diving operation is required to make an extensive risk assessment and hazard analysis. There are redundancies built into every procedure to eliminate human error or faulty equipment. Some oil rigs are even equipped with special hyperbaric lifeboats that can transport saturation divers away from a hurricane or fire without having to bring them back to surface pressure first. It wasn't until 2009 that the Norwegian government paid undisclosed sums of money to the families of all six victims of the 1983 accident, including the injured Saunders. In 2016, the Biford Dolphin Rig was put to rest. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.